Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being with us. So we have lots to talk about on the program today. First up, though, we take another look at that release that was put out by the mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, saying the city is at risk of going bankrupt and looking at some numbers that were part of a research co-poll commissioned by the city, uh, saying that a lot of people in the city feel like they will not be able to pay their property taxes. And again, the mayor saying that puts the city on the brink of bankruptcy. He spoke about this earlier this morning on Mornings with Simi. And so that means we have to immediately begin uh, shutting down services. So we've uh, already laid off 1,500 workers. The city of Surrey's laid off 2,000. Like this is starting to spread right across the country. But we haven't cut into essential services yet. Uh, with 30% of our budget being spent on fire and police here in the city, um, you know, if we had that kind of revenue loss, we'd have to, for example, move into laying off uh, firefighters, uh, having fewer police on the streets, uh, fewer permitting uh, bylaw officers, all that kind of stuff. And uh, this isn't some kind of fantasy discussion. This is something that is already beginning to happen right across the country. That was Kennedy Stewart responding to a question about the fact that cities can't legally run deficits. Well, let's bring in Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young joining me on the line now. Councillor, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know you were speaking with Janet Brown about this as well. You said that you were surprised by this release, also the timing that it was put out on the Sunday of the long Easter weekend. What are your thoughts, though, on what the mayor is saying? Uh, I, I, my, my thoughts are, I, I'm really concerned. I'm hearing from a lot of Vancouverites that are saying that this is adding to their anxiety level and, um, you know, the city making these bold pronouncements about the fact we'll have to go into bankruptcy is, is really not hitting the right note with them. And what they're looking for is some leadership from the city to say, how are you going to do what everybody else needs to do right now? And that is reduce. Um, we know that businesses, uh, their revenue is down. We know that residents, their income is down. People are losing their jobs and everybody is having to make tough decisions so they can feed their family or, or try to make a rent or, or a mortgage payment. And the city needs to step up and we need to show how we're going to reduce our operating budget as soon as we can. And is anything being done at this point? Are there discussions being had? I mean, I would think that there there would be calls right now to be going through that budget line by line, every single line to see what can be taken out, what is not essential. Staff are reviewing the budget um, and, and they are looking at those scenarios. I think we need to do it much more expeditiously. We don't have time to wait. Uh, we know that the city is losing money every week from the facilities that are already closed. And we know from the results of the survey, and there's no surprise, um, that a, a lot of people were not able to make their rent or mortgage payments in April, and those numbers are expected to go up in May. So I, I think what we need to do is, is sort of dial down the hope and a prayer and a Hail Marys to the senior levels of government and really dig down deep and take a look at what can the city do to right-size our government now and focus on core services in this extraordinary time. And do you think that would have been a better message? Because like you said, the message that went out yesterday added to a lot of anxiety. The last thing people want to hear is the city they're living in where they are having trouble paying the bills is on the brink of declaring bankruptcy. They want to hear leadership. They want to hear what the city is doing to not go into that, but to avoid that. Absolutely. Of course, I think that would be a, a better message. I think that's what leadership is, is, is stepping up and making tough decisions in, in tough times. And that's what people want to hear um, from their leaders. As a municipal government, we know that we cannot run an operating deficit. We know that there are going to be a lot of demands on senior levels of government for funding. And a lot of that needs to go direct to residents and business to help them because they're hurting. So they are looking for that leadership. And I think it's tone deaf to have sent that out on an Easter Sunday when people are at least trying to enjoy um, Easter or, or a little bit of, of that normalcy with their families um, and they can't be with their extended family. So I, I'm not sure why that needed to go out at Easter. Um, I appreciate that uh, the mayor is advocating senior levels of government, but what we're not seeing is, is stepping out with a strong message that says we have responsibilities at the city and we need to balance our books. Is there anything that you've looked at in the budget that, that you think would be an area where it could be shelved, at least for the foreseeable future, to try and make ends meet? Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to look at it with a you know core, core service versus nice-to-do perspective. And when I say core service, I think about things like sanitation, sewers, garbage pickup, um, a you know, reasonable level of public safety for police and fire. Anything else above and beyond that right now during the, you know, as I said, we're in a crisis of a lifetime is a nice to do. And we need to look at that as optional. So 
it's uh, across the board in a number of different departments. A lot of the social programs in the other areas the city has been investing in um, some grants. It may be things like having to have less opening days, not being open seven days a week at community centres and libraries when we are able to reopen them. Because, again, we're not trying to budget or balance the budget, I should say, for the remainder of 2020. We know this is going to continue um, into 2021 with economic impact and recovery. Um, city can look at capital projects. There's a lot of those on the book that do affect our operating budget in terms of servicing some of that debt for capital. So whether it's the Granville Bridge upgrades or looking at things, a number of other projects like relocation of the Vancouver archives, um, I I can name a whole bunch of projects that's on the books to try to relocate that for $16 million. There's a lot of projects that that don't need to be done right now um, and can be shelved until we're in a better situation to be able to do them in the future. That's uh, odd you bring that one up. I was looking at that one. I have the, the the spreadsheets right in front of me. That one seems a bit of a no-brainer in that I can't imagine anybody that would argue that's a priority needs to be done immediately for a price tag of $16 million. Well, absolutely. And, and I think that's where, you know, council has been asking for a full list from staff. We don't have it yet of all the capital projects so that we can go through and make some of those tough decisions. We have a council meeting coming up on Tuesday, tomorrow, um, to look at this report, which really is, as I call it, the Hail Mary report. They asked the province um, to help us so that we don't have to, we can be whole the city and not change anything. That's unrealistic. We need to make changes. We need to reduce. And I'll be bringing an amendment forward um, that I hope council will support, but ask our staff to come back as soon as possible with a plan to deliver a balanced operating budget in 2020. All right. So we will wait and see what happens tomorrow. Councillor Kirby Young, thank you so much. Thanks, Joe. Well, just before the break, we were talking about how Vancouver is dealing with such a financial shortfall. The mayor has said the city is on the verge of bankruptcy. Certainly not Vancouver alone in this. Cities right across the country are looking at huge financial shortfalls. And joining me to talk about this is Francis Bula, Urban Affairs Contributor with The Globe and Mail. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Where to begin? Because I know you were part of a piece in the Globe and Mail right now looking at these huge financial shortages that are being faced by many, many cities. Uh, You've also been uh, battling several people on Twitter today, taking a look at the finances in Vancouver. Uh, Let's start there. How big of an issue do you see uh, ahead as we don't know how long this COVID-19 response is going to go when it comes to those financials? Well, it's huge. Um, I mean, cities do have reserves. You know, let's not kid ourselves. Like any city that's responsible has some kind of reserve in case there's a downturn. What no one expects is that the economy is going to collapse completely. And um, cities are losing hundreds of millions of dollars a day across the country. Um, Vancouver's actually in a slightly better position because we don't run transit, so TransLink has its own problems. Uh, but in Toronto, um, they do do transit um, and a number of other things. They're losing $65 million a week. Um, Edmonton is projected to lose something like, um, I think, $111 million by mid-September in Halifax. You know, their transit services down, everything's down. Saskatoon, um, you know, they're losing $4 million a week. And in the meantime, they have a fairly large homeless population they're trying to take care of. Like, all across the country, it's just um, these city mayors are just, at their wits end, really. And the thing that a lot of people don't understand about cities is that unlike the province or the federal government, they're not allowed to run deficits. By December 31st, they have to have balanced their budget. And so that means, you know, if they run out of revenue, then they can't pay anybody. And we've already seen layoffs. And if you're looking at Vancouver, was it something like 1,500 people laid off already? Yeah. The, the mayor is now talking about uh, that's going to mean uh, when we get to the other side of this, uh, if you're looking for a building permit, there might not be someone there to get it for you. And he's going even further saying frontline staff, firefighters, police officers, there could be cuts there. Well, the 1500 was for the closed facility. So that's libraries, community centers, rec centers. Okay, they're not open. We're not going to pay those people. That makes sense. But um, there's a huge, huge hole still uh, going on. Um, the no parking revenue. Vancouver gets $100 million in parking revenue every year. Montreal, uh, Montreal gets $200 million. So barely any parking revenue. Um, all kinds of things. So then what comes next is starting to cut essential services uh, or, or, you know, some essential, maybe not 
uh, not necessarily others, but definitely um, looking at, you know, can you keep the building permits um, desk, uh, virtual desk going? Um, uh, there were plans to hire more off, uh, police officers and firefighters. I imagine that's on hold, and and anyone who leaves is not going to be replaced at this moment. Um, you can't fix the kinds of holes that cities are seeing in their budgets just by, you know, a little bit of, you know, buying fewer paper clips here and, um, you know, getting rid of a few staff you don't like there. And with the idea of deficits, and I know the mayor was asked about this as well, but even if some are saying, fine, that should that should be extended, that cities can run deficits, that doesn't seem like that's going to be any kind of long-term solution. Well, the, the the problem that, and again, all the mayors are telling me the same thing. This is not unique to Vancouver. I know we like to think we, you know, are plagued more than other cities, but we really aren't. Um, all the mayors are saying the problem is you run a deficit, you're going to have to pay it back probably fairly short term, or even if it's long term, it comes out of two very finite sources or, you know, like relatively restricted pools of revenue, property taxes and user fees. So, um, you know, their argument, and it's been this way for a long time, is that provinces and the federal government have access to a lot more different kinds of revenue. Um, And um, if you put it on cities, that's going to mean a really big burden uh, of certain types of costs for city residents. And you, I'm glad you mentioned that. It's not just Vancouver, it's Surrey, it's uh, probably uh, every city in Metro Vancouver. But I think what people are looking at is kind of the difference in response, where we have the mayor in Vancouver asking for provincial money, saying there could be up to uh, a half a billion dollar hole, uh, and the mayor of Port Coquitlam saying, we're going to defer taxes, we're not going to raise taxes, don't worry about it. Well, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, um, that was that tax... Um, deferral or the, the the reducing the tax increase that only cost the city three hundred thousand dollars which is thirteen dollars and twenty eight cents per household and um although you know I, mayor brad west does run a very tight ship out there he also doesn't have to deal with any of the kinds of problems or very few of the kinds of problems that say surrey does or vancouver does homelessness drug addiction people coming into your downtown area um you know, being an essential part of the economy. I mean, there's an incredible number of jobs in Vancouver, port jobs, uh, you know, all kinds of things like that, and the same in Surrey. So it's a bit unfair to compare a small city of 58,000 with a Surrey or a Vancouver or a Toronto. And when you talk about that as well, because that uh, was was mentioned in the the article that uh, it is the cities that have higher numbers of homeless, who have higher numbers of addiction, that are being even harder hit for for the very reason you just mentioned that uh, that is a much higher cost. Yeah, I mean, I I don't haven't I don't think anyone's seen what the bills are yet on that. Um, you know, it's not. Enormous. It's not as big as what they're losing in revenue from all the other areas, but it still is one more thing, and it can't be cut uh, at this point. Or, or really, you know, you're only endangering the health of the whole city if you just say, "Okay, all you homeless people, you're on your own, and you know, do whatever, and we won't provide any additional health or sanitation or housing services." Uh, where do you think or what do you think we'll hear next? I know uh, City Council of Vancouver's uh, Council is meeting tomorrow, I imagine virtually or in a, in a different way. What do you think we're going to hear next? Well, I mean, I think all cities are going to have to look at what can we defer. You know, Vancouver has a really big capital spending program. Um, they were supposed to spend $302 million this year. I think they're really going to have to look hard at that. Uh, and I think that's happening in all kinds of cities. They're really going to have to designate um, what is absolutely essential, like what all the cities said. And Saskatoon, you know, <laughs> uh, Toronto all said, we are the economic economic engines of our provinces. So we need to be ready to go uh, once things start picking up and a recovery starts. So if we lay off all of our building permits staff and, um, you know, all of our inspectors, that's going to make it really hard when um, things start to get going again, if you have to spend a month or so ramping that back up. So, but there, you know, there are things that can be looked at, I think, and that's what 
you know, you'll probably see at count, at this council and at many councils, like what can be, what can be deferred without, you know, destroying the ability of the city to recover. Uh, and without, you know, another factor is everyone you throw off of a city payroll is just going to be collecting, you know, unemployment or something like that from the federal <laughs> government. So taxpayers are going to pay no matter what. Indeed. All right, Francis, we will leave it there. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks a lot. Well, you had to know this was going to happen. With businesses shut down, many, many businesses shut down because of COVID-19, some of the services that are no longer allowed because you can't possibly practice physical distancing while doing them. Well, some of those services have popped up on places like Craigslist. Take a listen to this hairdresser who was speaking with Grace Key at Global News after they called about one of those ads. For me, though, I always wear gloves, face mask, and uh, shield. You wear face mask and, and shield. Oh, yeah. They're not supposed to be operating. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth says when it comes to policing, there are a couple of tools that can be used for these underground businesses. And so bylaw officers, if they become aware of it or hear a complaint about it, they can investigate. Um, they have the ability to ticket. Uh, it may not be operating with a business license, for example. That's one way. All right, coming up this half hour, we are going to take your calls on what some businesses are looking like in this pandemic and the businesses that are staying open, some controversy over things like golf courses being allowed to stay open. But first, let's bring in Muriel Protzer, Canadian Federation of Independent Business Policy Analyst for British Columbia. Muriel, thank you so much for being with us today. Good afternoon. Thanks so much for having CFIB. Well, it's great to have you back on the show. Are you hearing from businesses? Are there concerns about the fact that we haven't moved to an essential only model, that there's some unfairness as to what can stay open and what can't? Well, what we've seen so far is it's really up to the provincial health officer in the respective province to make those calls. The situation varies depending uh, which province you are in across Canada. And we're trusting that uh, those in government are doing uh, everything the best they can to put the forefront of health care at their minds and making those decisions that are necessary. That being said, we haven't seen the shutdown of non-essential services yet here in B.C. And are businesses concerned that we are? And when we look at something like golf courses, for some reason, golf courses are a bit are really getting a lot of uh, controversial remarks. Some people saying they should be shut down, others supporting them. Many of the courses saying, look, we've brought in new measures to make sure people are distancing. We can do this. Um, are you hearing that that there is that kind of discrepancy or, or there's some questioning as to what's being allowed to stay open? I think for small business owners right now, what's at the forefront of their minds is just uh, asking themselves if they can remain open and for those who have closed, what support is out there. Um, while the government has issued a list of essential services, there has not been a such, uh, shutdown. What we're recommending businesses do is take a look at that essential service list and plan for the future because while we haven't seen a shutdown of non-essential services yet, it certainly could happen depending on what happens with the pandemic. It is a very fluid topic. And so business owners should be prepared in terms of uh, what's fair and unfair. We really have to leave it up to the, the experts here. And that is our provincial health officer here in British Columbia. Small businesses must be uh, grappling, though, with in some business cases or in some models where they're able to stay open, whether it's a small restaurant, say, that's it's able to stay open and provide some takeout service, that, that, that the cost of staying open and providing the service with a huge revenue loss, if, if that is better than just shutting the door and hoping for better assistance. It's really difficult right now. You've absolutely hit the nail on the head right there. A lot of business owners just simply don't know what is the best decision to make. A lot of the financial support programs, for example, the federal wage subsidy, um, business owners aren't seeing the benefit for that yet and likely won't until about mid-May. So making that decision to keep your business open for one more day, one more week, it's really tough when you don't even know for sure if you'll get that financial assistance. So ensuring that we can make sure that that financial support, that cash is getting its way to those business owners as quickly as possible with the least amount of administrative burden is so essential right now. How are businesses doing that? There must be many. Even if you're sure that you will qualify for that and get that money starting mid-May, how are they paying their staff for another month? Well, that's the that's the question I think we're all asking ourselves right now. There are some loan programs open, for example, the federal loan program up to $40,000 with 10000 of that forgivable once it's paid off. 
Um, that's one, one way that small business owners are looking at being able to pay their staff. Um, others may have reserves that they can tap into. Um, but for a lot of small businesses, having to ask yourself, do I, do I go in debt? Is that really the uh, the decision that I need to make right now is a very difficult one. And for some, um, they may make the other choice just to shut their doors entirely. Are there any types of businesses you're hearing from that are the hardest hit or having the most difficulty at this point? I think retail and hospitality are getting hit very, very hard right now. Um, just by nature, uh, revenues down massively while they're, they have been able, uh, many of them to switch over to delivery, takeout services. It's still very, very difficult then to make sure that you're following the correct guidelines for um, hotels, for example, making sure that sanitation is being done correctly. And, um, you know, we're going into summer. Tourism is a huge part of our uh, local economy here in the lower mainland. Um, a lot of those businesses that so very rely upon um, tourists coming to uh, beautiful British Columbia um, are, are really scratching their heads right now. I can imagine it's got to be so stressful. And even with those businesses, when you talk about retail and hospitality, there's so much uncertainty as well with people, whether their employment is going to continue, whether they need to save that money for the months ahead. And I think there's that kind of people are grappling with, on the one hand, want to really support local businesses, but aren't spending money right now. Yeah, it's it's very difficult. I think uh, for those who have the ability, uh, that uh, flexibility in their finances, even if it's just a little bit to support a small business, I strongly encourage that. Um, you, it, I mean, you can't go out on the streets here and, and go to your favorite local bar or go to your hairdresser. So for some people, um, that is savings uh, for them. But for the majority of people, absolutely. Um, concern over their job, concern about security, whether or not they will be able to see some sort of financial support. Um, it's very stressful for both residents and uh, business owners right now. What do you say to businesses uh, like that clip uh, I played before we brought you on? Uh, businesses that are illegally putting their services on Craigslist or other listings and trying to go around the actual rules? Well, the COVID-19 pandemic is real and it is a serious threat to the healthcare of Canadians. And it also poses a threat to our economy. And that's why CFAB has been advocating for support, pro- uh, support programs for businesses, for those who are open and those who are closed. Um, for those who are operating illegally, um, there can be fines up to $50,000. This is not insignificant. And it's so very important that we do listen to our provincial health officer and we do follow the guidelines and the orders that have been set, um, that we are putting the healthcare at the forefront of our minds so we can return to some sense of normality once the pandemic is over. We need to make those actions now to get there. All right. We will leave it there. Muriel, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having CFIB. All right. Muriel Protzer is the CFIB business policy analyst for BC. We are going to take a short break. When we come back, uh, there seems to be a lot of back and forth, some disagreement, to put it mildly, over things like golf courses and parks. Well, there has been a fair amount, I think you could say, of social media shaming of people that are seen in large gatherings, uh, maybe playing a big basketball game or a soccer game. People saying, look, we all need to take these new rules and restrictions seriously if we want to stop this virus. Then there are the more serious cases, like the video of the man who was caught spitting on an elevator console in a building in Vancouver. Uh, His lawyer coming out this past weekend and offering up the apology from his client. Uh, Many people saying that bylaw officers should be ticketing and fining people, not just giving them warnings. Well, where does this all stand and how do we navigate to what is illegal and what could lead to a criminal charge. Well, Vancouver lawyer Sarah Lehman has written about this in the Georgia Strait, and she joins us on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Sarah Lehman, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. There, there is that I'm hearing from people saying, I wish that they were giving out fines or making the acts of going against physical distancing or endangering people, um, making, making kind of the rules seem to have more teeth. But you've written about the fact that the current criminal code, there are ways that people could be ticketed and punished. Oh, certainly. Uh, Our criminal laws as they exist now are sufficient in order to properly address uh, different types of behaviors that we're unfortunately seeing happening more and more as, of course, you know, these conditions wear on. And, you know, it's important for us to understand that the actions that people take when they go ahead and 
ignore social distancing mandates, either intentionally or recklessly, uh, will have consequences, uh, not just potentially for the community at large, but also for themselves. So what would happen then, or what could happen? And we'll use the example of the man who was seen on that footage spitting on the elevator. I mean, he has issued an apology. Could he be criminally charged? He could be, in my opinion. Uh, I think that he could be charged with mischief, which is um, quite a wide offense. And, you know, it does carry quite serious penalties. Uh, If you end up being convicted of mischief, you could see large monetary fines. In extreme cases, there could even be jail time issued. So, you know, these types of things really do carry serious consequences. And it's important to drive that message home to everybody. And what about the cases we've seen where people being arrested have coughed in the faces of officers? If you don't have COVID-19 and you do that, I would imagine that would be treated differently. Or is it just the act of coughing in an officer's face during this that would be deemed criminal? Well, I mean, I think it's never advisable to be coughing or spitting or doing anything like that to anybody, and particularly police officers who are out there on the front lines, you know, risking themselves and their safety every single day during this global pandemic. But there is a distinction between, you know, simply, say, coughing on somebody uh, intentionally versus unintentionally, of course. If it's not intentional, then that shouldn't warrant any type of criminal sanction. But if you're intentionally coughing on somebody and then, you know, maybe telling them or saying, you know, I'm COVID-19 positive or, you know, I'm trying to transmit the virus to you, that person could theoretically be charged with aggravated assault. Because not only are they assaulting a person by coughing on them without any consent, but they're also doing it for the purposes of potentially transmitting that deadly virus. Uh, You mentioned in the article as well about Mike Farnworth, who's our public safety minister, uh, telling people that a breach of the health orders could result in fines or even jail time. How realistic is that, though, given that we tend to view uh, the the criminal justice system as, as we don't send people to jail all that often? How realistic is it that people breaching health orders would be? Well, I mean, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, particularly right now, given the very unique nature of this pandemic, because at the same time that we're saying, you know, we have to take this very seriously and issue serious penalties for those who contravene these mandates, we're also saying that we shouldn't be sending people to jail in these conditions. And one of the reasons for that is because it does compromise the safety and security of people who are serving in custody sentences, as well as people who work in those facilities. So, you know, jail is always a last resort, but particularly right now during this pandemic. Uh, that being said, there are still other ways to get around that. I mean, people could be ordered on conditions for house arrest. They could be ordered to pay large monetary fines, which really hits home. Um, and there's a number of other things that can be asked of people in order to make sure that they do keep these um, these mandates in mind and take them seriously. And does it come to down to the issue as well of if somebody, and we've had bylaw officers and people in parks and places where, where there are large gatherings telling people that they need to distance, that they're too close, but wouldn't there be an issue, it would be difficult, wouldn't it, for somebody to prove uh, these two people intentionally stood close together if they're saying, oh, we didn't realize it, it was a mistake? Yeah, I mean, there's just so many difficulties in terms of enforcing uh, social distancing orders. I think the important thing to realize is that not every single contravention of the mandates that are out there will constitute something that warrants a criminal charge. I think that criminal charges should be kept for the most egregious cases, cases where it's plainly obvious that the person is trying to intentionally engage in behavior to put themselves or other people at risk in the community. People who are just, you know, going about their daily business, maybe not paying close attention to how far they're standing away from others, should be reminded about their obligations and potentially issued with bylaw infractions that don't carry a criminal jeopardy. And just wanted to touch on one other topic in the piece, and it's comparing Canadian laws, uh, be it terrorism laws or ways to crack down on this type of behaviour, compared to what we're seeing in the States. Certainly, yes. The U.S., we've seen a different approach in some states. We have seen a number of states actually going ahead and charging people under anti-terrorism laws. Now, I don't think that we're going to have to resort to that here in Canada. And our laws are probably a little bit ill-suited for that because in order to be charged under anti-terrorism legislation, 
there does have to be an intent to actually cause harm for some type of politically uh, motivated reason or religiously motivated reason. Uh, And I don't think that we're going to hopefully see anything like that. All right. What would be your advice to people then? Obviously, we all want to get through this as quickly and safely as we possibly can. What would be your advice then to people who maybe are concerned that they could be charged for making a mistake or when they see people out in public breaking these rules? Yeah, I mean, again, I don't think we're going to see people being criminally charged for just making simple mistakes. But I think it's important to make sure that everybody is well aware of what's expected of them from provincial health authorities and to make sure that we're all doing our part in observing those new mandates. Because, again, you know, they aren't just kind suggestions. These are things that have to be observed in order to get us through this together uh, in the quickest way possible so we can get back to life as normal. All right, we will leave it there. Sarah Lehman, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Sarah Lehman is a lawyer at Sarah Lehman Law, and you can read her latest piece that was in the Georgia Strait. Well, when Denmark initially put in restrictions when it came to the border of that country, people moving around the border, going to schools and whatnot, we were talking with Shane Woodford, who is a freelance journalist now based in Denmark. He's a former CKNW reporter. So we've brought him back on the show today because the news now is that Denmark is getting ready to gradually reopen the country. And Shane is on the line with us again. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Always good to talk to you, Jill. How are you? Uh, very, very well. So what is happening? Because this seems like it didn't take all that long, although a, the, the days are all kind of melding into one. But it seems like it didn't take all that long for us to get to this point where we're seeing Denmark about to relax restrictions and reopen the country. Yeah, we were under, and still are under, uh, but we've been under lockdown now for roughly one month. Uh, that's going to continue uh to a great degree until May when a sort of reassessment will take place. So what's happening now is we have closed borders. Uh, Most of the stores are closed. Restaurants can't operate unless it's doing takeout. No tattoo parlors, no massages, no nothing with close personal contact. Universities and schools are closed. But as of Wednesday this week, they're reopening schools um, up to grade five. And that includes daycare. So we daycares, kindergartens, and then grades one through five. Kindergarten here is grade zero. Um, And that's sort of a first cautious toe in the water of a reopening. Uh, And they're going to see how that goes. And then, as I said in May, then they'll try and reassess based on whatever the landscape is. We've sort of hit our peak and the important numbers, which is the ICU demand, the number of Danes with coronavirus that are hospitalized, and especially those who require a ventilator, have all been trending down now for almost two weeks straight. So um, fingers crossed, we're over sort of the peak of the first wave, and now we kind of see how the country can kind of, I don't want to say get back to normal, but try and restore some sense of normality and get the economy going again while dealing with whatever coronavirus throws at us next. And I understand, too, the Prime Minister uh, warned people and said if we open too quickly, the risk is that the infection rate's going to jack up again or rise again very sharply. Yeah. So clearly they'll be paying very close attention to that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, this is, as I said, very much a, a cautious first step in the water. And the reason they're doing it is uh, essentially kids at the age up to grade five have a really, I mean, according to health experts anyway, have a really uh, slight chance of getting coronavirus. I think it's about 1.9%. And there's also, again, according to the health experts, no evidence that a child of that age has transmitted coronavirus to an adult. That said, you know, um, this is a a new thing. We don't know exactly every little aspect and angle of how the coronavirus works. So there's some nervousness even in this reopening among especially parents, and and I'm one, my little guy will be one of the ones going back to school on Wednesday, uh, about what this means for our kids and and worries about, you know, bringing coronavirus home, uh, all that kind of stuff. But there is really, really, really stringent protocol in how they're going to do this, so much so, Jill, that that not all the schools are going to be ready by Wednesday. I think I just checked the numbers this morning, and I think it's about maybe 40% of the country's schools are going to be ready to go. And that's in in trying to meet the the strict restrictions placed on them by the health board. Right. 
What is it, do you think, that that led to this and that Denmark was early when it came into bringing the restrictions? But you talked about the restrictions in that country. They weren't as as much as we saw in France or in the UK, but they came in later. Do you think it was the timing that Denmark was able to 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 flatten that curve and get to this point? That would be sort of my best guess at this stage. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not an infectious disease expert, but I have been, you know, diving neck deep into into all of the numbers and the data and watching it really closely. Um, and it seems to me, if you look at the numbers, that all the countries that acted proactively, that hit the panic button when, you know, the evidence may not have been terribly great on the ground for to justify that action, like Denmark, like in Norway, like a Finland, like a Slovakia, like a Poland, to name a bunch, uh, they immediately took drastic measures. Like immediately, within days, Denmark went from shutting down the economy to closing its borders uh, to close, telling hairdressers and tattoo parlors they can't go. University students were sent home. The public sector was told to work from home. My wife is one of them. Uh, and that has done a lot. I mean, at least the evidence so far seems to indicate that that has done a lot to flatten the curve and to restrict the spread of the coronavirus to countries that seem to be the hardest hit, you know, your Italy's, your Spain's, your uh, Britain's, your France's, uh, and the United States as well, because they're probably the hardest hit, they are the hardest hit nation on earth right now. Um, All were extremely late to react or didn't react until it was much, much, much too late. So at this point, like you said, schools up to grade five are getting set to to follow these new rules and reopen. And will it then be monitoring that as far as if restaurants reopen or what is then allowed to reopen in May? Yeah, so what's going to happen is um, the current lockdown conditions minus uh, the limited school reopening that will take place on the 15th this Wednesday um, will continue until at least May 10th. And then I assume we're going to hear from the Prime Minister in the days uh, leading up to May 10th to get an assessment of what's going on, and then on the 10th and after about what their decision will be. Um, my sense is is that, you know, I don't, obviously you don't have a crystal globe in front of me to say how everything is going to work out, but my sense is they're going to keep a, a hawk-like eye on the numbers and the situation, and then they're going to start to look at reopening the country. I think the um, the big question mark will be around borders. Uh, you can sort of restart the economy internally. Uh, it won't be easy, um, but you can make a pretty good argument, numbers holding, that you could do that, and then Danes could go out to restaurants and, and resume shopping and all of that, and to some degree kind of reignite the economy. Um, but I think if you look at what China's done and kind of getting a a handle on the coronavirus outbreak and now they're super nervous about somebody bringing in a wave of infection from outside so there's super vigilance on their borders and i my best guess at this point jill is we're going to see until there's a vaccine or some kind of proven treatment i think you will see very very nervous countries doing very very cautious reopenings and being very very hawkish on their own borders and should international travel start up again to some extent, I think it will vary from country to country about who they let in, if they let in anybody, and what guidelines and restrictions you could see coming into the country. For example, you know, let's say Denmark throws open the borders in May, but the United States is still in the throes of a massive outbreak. Well, then they could say, well, you know, if you're coming in from the United States, you're going to have a two-week quarantine, or maybe they say you don't, can't come at all. Something along those lines. I think we're going to see that for the, at least the next few months to immediate future until a vaccine shows up. Okay, we got to the numbers from Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry. Just a few moments ago, 45 new cases since her last update, 25 and then another 20 new cases. Unfortunately, 11 people have passed away, 11 more people. That brings the number in BC to 69. A slight decline, though, in the number of cases in the ICU. 58 people currently in the ICU, 137 people currently in hospital. So what does this tell us? Let's Let's bring in Jason Tetro. He is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, and he has been joining us, thankfully, to go through these numbers from time to time. Jason, thanks for being back with us. Uh, good to be joining you. Uh, what do the numbers tell you as far as the fight to flatten this curve? Uh, I mean, everything is going 
just as well as you could be expected. Uh, I, I know that you know, we're going to unfortunately have deaths, and as Dr. Henry already said, um, we're going to find out sort of over the next couple of weeks whether or not some of the people who have been contravening the social distancing, physical distancing, will lead to more cases. But at the moment, the numbers show that people really are doing what they've been asked. Uh, we definitely are seeing, uh, you know, that reduction in the sort of increase of cases from day to day. And quite honestly, um, you know, now that we have some other sort of um, technologies that are coming out, such as the uh, Spartan Bioscience test, which can do it in just a few minutes, um, it looks like we're finally starting to um, move in a direction that's very positive as opposed to sort of where we've been for the last two or three weeks, which has been kind of at a standstill. Uh, the numbers also show that uh, the outbreaks uh, in long-term care facilities, there are 20 care facilities uh, on, the, on the good side there. There were no more facilities that mm-hmm. were added to those numbers, uh, as well as in prisons, which I, I can't imagine is a huge surprise when we're dealing with people. In the one case, we're dealing with people close together that already have weakened immune systems. In the other case, we're dealing with people who probably aren't distancing. Yeah, I mean, the, the health in correctional facilities is um, a huge priority, believe it or not, in Canada. And, um, you know, when you have something like this virus going into uh, any kind of uh, situation where people are, you know, put behind bars, uh, they're in very small, isolated locations, um, it can become very difficult to be able to prevent a wildfire spread. Um, you know, <sighs> I don't want people to think of it the wrong way, but when you're in a jail, it's no very, it's not much different than some people who happen to be in long-term care facilities, nursing homes. Your limit, your mobility is limited. Um, you find yourself around the same people all the time, and your immune systems do happen to be weak. So when we start talking about um, nursing home, long-term care facilities, and of course correctional facilities, we are seeing the most weak and, and vulnerable out of our population. And thankfully, when those those numbers start to go down as sort of we're beginning to see now. It means that we really are doing a great job out in the rest of the world. And speaking about the rest of the world, because this has been something quite controversial as well, and people seem uh, all too happy to socially shame people on various uh, different platforms. Uh, Dr. Henry reiterated today that it's okay for people to go outside. She said it's okay to go for a walk. You can even go for a picnic with a family member. The key is to stay awake, to keep that distance from others. Uh, do you think, is that, does that make sense as far as, yes, we can still keep doing these things? Well, I think what happened is the minute that we had this sort of um, social distancing, uh, as opposed to physical distancing, but social distancing, you stay home, stay home, stay lives, right? Um, uh, Save lives. What you're essentially doing is you're telling people you can't congregate amongst one another. Now, the fact of the matter is that when you start talking about physical distancing, it's a little bit different. But you have to get people used to the idea of not being around others within that close distance. And then what you can do is sort of relax a little bit on on that rigidity. Now, does that mean that we should be giving up the snitch lines? Probably not. And now we're seeing in some provinces, uh, you know, they're going to be literally walking the parks to hand out tickets. The fact is, is that It's still going to take some time for people to understand. It just seems that in British Columbia, because of the way the numbers have been, people seem to be getting it. It's almost like they woke up one day after uh, everybody was at the beach that one weekend a couple of weeks ago uh, and went, maybe we shouldn't have done that. And and now it's kind of like, okay, good. Let's see if we can relax it a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And each baby step, we're going to get back to normal. And is it still a say, I mean, there's been, now there's been talk as well of people who are running, that that runners particularly, be it on the seawall or places where it is difficult to socially distance, they aren't following the rules. And there's even more concern with runners being able to spread this virus perhaps farther than if you were just going to walk by someone. Well, I mean, it's not about spreading it farther. In other words, it's still only six feet that, uh, you know, your breath is going to go. The problem is, is now you're moving. (laughs) So what happens is that as you're exhaling, you're covering a certain distance at the same time. You're also exhaling at a much heavier rate. So therefore, there's going to be more droplets going out there. So if you happen to be running, it's very good to be able to make sure that you have that six feet distance laterally, 
but also back and forth, you want to have a, a greater length. It's always better to be upwind, put it that way. Mm-hmm. That, that, that uh, sounds good, for sure. Um, well, you mentioned the, the rapid tests and the changing in, in tests. Do you think that's going to, to provide us a much clearer picture, or, or what can we take when we start to be able to test and get a better idea who has antibodies and the more true numbers? Okay, so this is going to be a bit of a double-edged sword. Um, what's going to happen is that when we start having the ability to test everybody rapidly, like it's essentially moving towards, um, we're going to start to see a lot of possible new cases. That's fine because they're probably going to be mild or asymptomatic. The thing that's going to be a problem, though, is that we're going to start seeing that um, you know severe case ratio drop significantly. And the problem is, is that if we start lowering below that 1%, you know, death rate, and we start getting close and close and close to what pandemic influenza was 10 years ago, people are going to start getting real complaining. So we have to understand something. This virus does nasty things to people who are most vulnerable, and we are doing our best to protect them. The problem is, is we didn't have the testing in place to only focus on protecting them. So we had to take a much larger action When we start getting to the point where we can do this testing, we're going to see the ability to relax those restrictions. That's fine. But nobody should get angry. Nobody should start talking about this being an overreaction as we move forward. All right. We will leave it there. Thank you once again, uh, Jason, for coming on the program to talk about this. I'm sure we will talk to you again soon. It was a pleasure. Take care. All right. Jason Tetro is the host of the Super Awesome Science Show, responding to the latest numbers put out by Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix today. Some interesting numbers when it comes to ferry travel as well. Adrian Dix saying that the major routes last year on the Easter long weekend, 173 284,000. So more than 173,000 people traveled from the Thursday to the Sunday. This year, 14,000. We just heard from Dr. Bonnie Henry talking about personal protective equipment, and that certainly has been in the news a lot lately. And she reiterated that right now in BC, uh, saying the situation is all right. Uh, Adrian Dix, the health minister, thanked Alberta for helping out with some of the supply. But there are concerns that some BC care workers could see shortages of those supplies in the future. And joining me to talk a bit more about that is Jennifer Lyle the CEO of SafeCare BC. Jennifer, thanks for being back on the show. Thanks for having me. So who is is concerned about a critical shortage in masks and other protective equipment? So what we did is on Friday, we actually issued an emergency survey to our members. Um, And so essentially that included home care, long-term care, assisted living, group homes, um, and the like. And um, what we did is we asked those respondents to essentially provide us with a snapshot of what their organizations were looking at in terms of personal protective equipment supplies. And what we heard back was close to 70% are looking at a critical shortage of at least one item. And what that means is that they have three days or less worth of supply. And so that doesn't quite match what the health minister and uh, Dr. Henry are saying. Is it the difference in hospitals and clinics or who's actually receiving the supplies? Well, I can't really speak to the the general strategy around managing the provincial supply chain. What I can say is that the the results that we saw in our survey uh, match the the stories that we're hearing. So, and I'll give you an example. Even as recently as as last night, I actually had a group emailing me saying that they they have a care home that currently has no eye protection, and they also are looking at potentially running out of PPE by tomorrow. And so, this is a group that's coming forward, uh, you know, on a Sunday night over a long weekend. I think that underscores the urgency of ensuring that we're addressing the need here. And where do they get their equipment from? Well, under normal circumstances, you know, care homes, home care agencies, assisted living have their own supply chains that they manage independently. The challenge that we've seen is that we're, we are in extraordinary circumstances. I think this is a situation that we, like collectively as a society, probably haven't seen for over 100 years. So we've seen that there's massive disruption in the supply chains, and this has actually been sort of a slow-boiling issue that's, that started back as early as mid-February and now is really coming to a head. Uh, and so if, we, if we're seeing these numbers, the 70% saying they're fearful that in three days they could run out. So what, where is the solution here? 
So we've been working with the provincial government, and I know there's a lot of work behind the scenes in terms of addressing this. So for one, one of the things that we've done as well in cooperation with the Ministry of Health is that we've set up a, an emergency request form that people can submit online through our website to flag that they are in urgent need. But in addition to that, we've taken another step ourselves in that we launched Operation Protect, um, which I know I've had the privilege of speaking about on your show before, but we've been taking those donations in. And uh, we have been both supplying those donations to the provincial supply chain, but we've also been acting as an emergency bridge measure in those circumstances where a care home or a home care agency or a group home has identified that they are in a very critical shortage and they need an immediate response. And and have you seen then enough supply or a, a bunch of supply coming into that? Because I know you did put the call out for anybody that might have extra, that it could be distributed to those places. We've seen a really good public response. I mean, we, I think we're close to or just over 360,000 items donated. I think the challenge is that the need is just so great. And again, just pointing to those numbers in our survey, um, you know, when you're looking at uh, close to 70% overall, and if we actually look at long-term care specifically, it's 72% of organizations looking at a critical shortage of personal protective equipment, we know that the need is great. And so is it different as far as Supply Hub, which Dr. Henry talked about today, which was brought in the provincial supply, the coordination unit because of COVID-19? Is that different in in how that distributes supplies compared to where you and your members get supplies? So they are two separate initiatives. So Operation Protect was something that we launched a couple weeks ago, and Supply Hub has been uh, an an initiative launched by the provincial government. They are running in parallel presently, and we are still directing some of those donations from Operation Protect into the provincial supply chain. Um, But again, I think what we're looking at is really an all-hands-on-deck situation in terms of being able to address the, the need for personal protective equipment across the entire continuing care sector and not just long-term care either. Uh, at this point as well, there are 20 long-term care facilities where there are positive cases of COVID-19. Uh, that's got to be concerning for your members as well in that these are places where we're seeing the outbreaks. Certainly, and it's something that we all have very much top of mind. I mean, when we look at the long-term care sector, I have nothing but respect for all the efforts that are being done, um, and in many cases, successful efforts, too, in terms of being very responsive to outbreaks when they occur. I think for us, too, it's also being mindful of the fact that there's the larger healthcare sector as well. I mean, we we talk about long-term care, but we are also seeing critical shortages of personal protective equipment in the home care sector, as well as in group homes. And there have actually been outbreaks in group home settings as well. And and how do you solve that issue then? Because, yeah, we, we do tend to talk about the actual facilities, but when we're talking about people in essential service that are still going into group homes or still providing that home care. Yeah, and I think it really underscores that critical need of of prioritizing addressing this issue of personal protective equipment shortages in the continuing care sector. So I know, again, Operation Protect is one of those ways that we're active in terms of addressing that. And then also, too, I will say that the the form submissions that we're taking, um, we are opening them up to the, the entirety of the continuing care sector. So that is inclusive of home care, group homes and the like. All right. Uh, We'll have to leave it there, but I'm sure we will talk to you about this uh, again in the future. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me.